Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. episode of Talk Wordy to Me. I'm your host Jordana Levine and this my dear friend is the final episode of season one of this podcast. I'm going to take a little four-week break and then I'm going to be back with a bit of a new format and a brand new co-host. But in this week's episode I'm chatting to author Anna Downs and that name might sound quite familiar to you. I spoke about her first book The Safe Place on the bonus episode of the podcast about uh suspenseful reads. And we talk a little bit more about The Safe Place today, but also her new book The Shadow House, which was an addictive thriller slash horror slash suspense read that I devoured in a couple of days, and I know you're going to love it. We start this conversation off talking about what Anna did before she was a successful author, something that I always find so fascinating, and Anna had quite the incredible tale. Enjoy. First place I always like to start with authors is finding out what it is you did before you could call yourself a best-selling author. Oh, oh yeah, I still love hearing that best-selling author, you know, never in my wildest dreams. All right, so before I thought about writing, I was an actor. So uh, that was, uh, I think there were signs when I was really young. I do have a memory of telling my family that I wanted to write one day. Like I was like, oh, I want to be a journalist or I want to, I want to, I don't think I knew what I wanted to to do specifically, but I, I did love writing. And I also have a memory of being, you know, going on those big family holidays and disappearing around sort of, um, you know, four or five o'clock before dinner to go and, um, you know, write my novel. So I had this, um, a notebook and, and a kind of a big text, a pen that I would go and write this you know, huge story with. Um, but it was always acting for me, you know, as, uh, as soon as I was old enough to make any kind of decisions about what sort of person I was and, you know, what I loved to do more than anything, it was always acting. Um, all my extracurriculars were always very artsy. I joined every, you know, youth theatre group that I could um everything was always about that and then um I studied drama at degree level at the University of Manchester and then I went on to uh train to be an actor for three years at RADA the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London Yeah. yeah And then I worked for four years professionally in London which was really great and I I did um I did comparatively really well. You know, there was, um, it's a, it's a tricky, (laughs) a tricky thing being released from those sorts of institutions uh, where you are very much kind of protected and, excuse me, shielded and, um, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of ostensibly preparing you for work in the real world, but actually what work in the real world in an arts career is, is um, a lot of instability, a lot of unpredictability, a lot of um, proactivity. Uh, you've got to be really assertive. You've got to be very, very thick-skinned and you've got to be okay with doing other jobs as well mm. in the meantime. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I was like class of 2004 and I always remember, um, you know, kind of once a month they'd have like a massive actor come in or an actress and sit there and give us a talk about what it was like to work in the real world and I always remember this guy coming in and I wish I could remember his name but he was a real old school English actor and he said whatever you do do not ever work as anything else never get another job this oh. is your, and, and it was amazing and actually now the memory's coming back to me he came in with um 
Diana Reed and Diana Reed turned around and said to him she was like are you kidding like this is you know you, you, you can't like they, they won't survive they won't live so there was a, quite a big discrepancy um with the advice that we were given so when we were released into the wild as it were um it did sort of feel incredibly um intimidating and scary and um you know there was a lot of other hard work yeah. involved. What, what were your aspirations at the time oh. of like leaving Rada? What did you want to do with your acting career? Um, well, I think because Rada, the, the training you receive at Rada is predominantly stage focused. Okay. Um, so we all wanted to be at the RSC. We all wanted yeah. to play the lead at the national. Um, but I think at that time there was a much greater sense of, uh, what it meant to be a, a screen actor. And I, I just remember not really, not not valuing it because of course we all valued it because that's where the, the, the kind of the money is and, and you, you kind of need that to live, obviously. Um, but it, it wasn't until I left RADA and I was auditioning for TV shows and working in TV that I sort of realised what a skill that was and that we didn't get in enough training so I think as I left RADA I was like oh I'm going to play Juliet at the RSC and kind of halfway through I was like actually no what I want is probably like a long-running reoccurring character on a decent TV show where so that gives you sort of um income and a bit of stability and then you can kind of take breaks and go off and do theatre if you can yeah I guess it kind of the parallels sort of like being on salary, like in a job compared to, you know, being a freelancer, you know, so you don't sort of know where the next paycheck's coming from, but at least when you're on a series, there's some sort of consistency to it, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I I feel like the realities of that job and that lifestyle, uh, it it was a, like a vertical learning curve when Mm. I came out, I was like, Oh, okay. So we're not all going to sit around <laughs> backstage at the national and talk about, you yeah. know, um, you know, it, it was it was much more brutal, like ruthless kind of everybody scrapping around, scrabbling for jobs. I remember like furiously writing letters to everyone in the industry I'd ever met, saying, "What's yeah. going on? What what job can I get? What are you doing right now?" I. Whatever you're doing, I'm the one that you want, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. When you come out of somewhere like Rada, is there, like, do you go out and find an agent or some sort of management? Is that something that they kind of help you with or are you just sort of out there on your own fending things No, they, they, do, they do help you in terms of um, they set up showcases. So your entire third year is basically showcasing showcase yeah. productions and um they do a kind of um monologue and duologue showcase as well uh and agents are invited to those but it's kind of up to you to research and contact the agents they don't they don't reach out on your behalf I mean I suppose like that I don't know maybe they might have whispered in a few people's ears if they thought that somebody was particularly good I don't know I don't know whether or not they had those connections but I remember certainly uh, putting in a lot of work and um you know, researching who I wanted uh, to, to to be represented by and inviting yeah. them. And um, I mean, it's a it's a very pushy uh, job being an actor. You know, you've really got to sharpen your elbows and, and be very proactive. Um, and I, at the time, I wasn't brilliant at that. I think I've learned a lot from it and carried yeah. it through to this kind of evolution of my arts career yeah Um, so let's talk let's talk about that evolution so I mean you haven't mentioned it but you had a few notable acting gigs yeah yeah well what were what were some of the most notable do you think oh well I was on EastEnders so that was that was pretty wonderful um (laughs) I mean my mum is going to be very stoked to hear that when I oh it was it that was a really good job um and then my my favorite uh was my uh pretty lengthy stint in the West End uh, on a production called The Dresser with um, a very famous TV actor in, in the UK called Nicholas Lindhurst and mm. uh, Julian Glover. Um, <clears throat> and that was phenomenal. That was, that was, that was amazing. Um, and, and lots of other um, 
So, you know, did my rounds of the hospital dramas, uh, Casualty and Holby City and uh, a detective show called D.L. and Pasco. And yeah, it was really, really fun. The jobs were always wonderful when I had them. It was just the in-between times that were hard. Yeah, which I mean, that that's a common case for actors, right? It's the in-between. Yeah. So how then did you get, well, there's there's two, there's a few stages here. You were, you were in the UK at this point. How did you get to Australia? And how did you how did you get into the career you're in now, which is full time writer? So uh, it, it's a really long story. I'll try and keep it short. We've got <laughs> but, time. Uh, <laughs> um, I sort of through a series of unfortunate events uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, I lost my agent, which was um, a real shame. She actually just kind of moved away. Um, and the uh, um, agency that she worked for didn't absorb her client list. So for anybody that's read The Safe Place, um, the way that my protagonist, Emily, loses her agent in that is is pretty similar to how I lost my agent. Um, And it was uh, a devastating blow. And, you know, immediately I was like, okay, get those sharp elbows out. Let's get proactive. I know how to do this. But it, it was just so difficult because of the timing. Um, you know, it, it happened in summer when all the dr- uh, drama school graduates had just come out. Mm. Um, I, I didn't have a job at the time to invite agents to come and see me in. And you can't necessarily get a job without an agent pushing you forward. Like it was, it was very, very, very difficult at the time. And um, I kind of sat down and went, right, all right, okay. Do you really want to do this job? Is it making you happy ultimately? Are you willing to spend the rest of your life fighting for this gig? And I wasn't 100% sure. There were a lot of things that I wanted to do besides that, you know, um, and I, I'd come to this realization that if I stayed in acting, I probably wouldn't be able to travel um, until, you know, unless I kind of really got those, um, you know, gold dust, uh, stable income jobs. Yeah. Um, because you're always waiting on the phone, you know, you're always waiting for the phone to ring. You're always waiting for that, that next job. <clears throat> so I made a list of things that I would like to do. Um, if, and you know, if I was going to stay in acting, I really wanted to be able to have done those things. And one of the things I was really into snow sports at the time. So I was like, right, I'm going to go and do a ski season. I'm going to take that break and just make sure that I'm doing something for me that, that feels like a big bucket list thing. And then I can go back refresh knowing that I've kind of got that out of my system. So I did a little course, uh, in massage therapy and I applied to work for a chalet company in the French Alps in a very small French run ski resort as a chalet manager and a, and a spa manager. And I went out there and did that. And two weeks after I arrived at this job in the French Alps, the rest of the, um, the, the chalet team arrived and, um, this tall, handsome Australian walked in the door and he's now my husband. So it was kind of a, um, an amazing experience in terms of finding, finding myself, finding love and going, yeah, no, I don't want to go back to that. There are so many more amazing, wonderful things in the Mm. world and things to be experienced. Uh, I also kind of feel like it was losing that acting job and, you know, that that acting lifestyle was a little bit like a bad breakup as well. So I I sort of felt uh, very very hurt by the whole thing you know I worked my whole life um really until yeah. that point and how, to... how old were you at this point <clears throat> 28 oh okay yeah 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 so it was quite significant you know I, I yeah. poured a lot of time and effort into it and um so I I, I remember feeling yep yeah, that's it I'm, I'm just I'm not I'm not ever going back to that I'm not ever doing that again uh, I, I'm probably never even going to go set foot inside a theatre ever again. No, mm. don't want, don't want to do it anymore. Like I couldn't, and for a long time I didn't go to the theatre because um, it was just too painful. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so as uh, my now husband and I um, 
you know, continued on in the ski season, we made a decision to do a bit more traveling after. And one of the things we, we did some seasonal jobs. One of the jobs that we did was working for a, a very wealthy Anglo-American family who owned a property on the Midwest coast of France. And oh, this sounds yeah, very familiar very to me. Familiar. I so, see. Yeah, the job that we did for them was we were living caretakers and housekeepers. Okay. And kind of personal assistance as well. And that is the experience on which I based my yeah. Yeah. The safe place. Yeah. So well let's let's start there then. Okay. Um I wanna I'll, we'll go back to how you sort of started writing this first novel. But mm. first of all, it was based, I guess, the fact that Emily Proudman is an actress who lost her agent trying to find her way um, and finds herself sort of in this predicament where she hasn't got any work and she's sort of struggling to make ends meet. And this offer, I guess, comes her way. Mm -hmm. So this, this place in the South of France where Emily goes to work, was it, was it quite similar to what you and your husband experienced? In terms of the setting? Yes. Yeah. And in terms of the situation, um, I mean, obviously I had to change certain things about the setting to, to fit the plot, um, and the narrative. Um, and we did work for, um, a husband and a wife. They had two children. Um, but they, the, the the real life couple that we work for is absolutely nothing like the couple who, fortunately, and nothing sinister happened at that house. It was a joyful experience. It was absolutely phenomenal, um, uh, but very eye opening in terms of you know what an extraordinary experience yeah. for two young people to be living and working with this absolutely. family. Um, and and honestly, the the this. The house itself, the property itself, as I described it in the book, I mean, it really wasn't that dissimilar. It was absolutely mind-blowingly beautiful, mm. uh, right on the edge of the ocean, kind of surrounded by forest. They had, you know, the basketball court, the tennis court. They had a quad bike track around the edge. They had a speedboat in the marina. They had they had a horse. You know, it was like yeah. thing. all the things that I've put in there were, were real, Um and while while you were there, were were you sort of building a narrative in your head, or was this just something that came came after the fact? Yeah, it came after the yeah. fact. I mean, I do I do remember thinking to myself, walking around that property, going, "This is just off the hook. Like somebody yeah. needs to write about this. Like this has to be something." But at that point, there was no idea in my head that that person might one day be me. No, I mean, were you were you even contemplating being a writer at that point? No. No, 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 it was just, no, (laughs) no, because I was still in my sort of post breakup kind of running away. No, I'm going to be a completely different person. I'm going to just spend the rest of my life traveling and having these amazing experiences. No, I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm all about me now kind of thing. And what was your, what was your now husband? What was his sort of um, career trajectory at that time? Was he sort of just floating as well? Yeah, so he was doing his. Um, uh, sorry, I just was saying I, I share a, um, a fence with a with a primary school. Can you hear the kids in the background? Do you want me to? I can. I can, can hear them. You? No, no, it's so fine. Like it, it just adds to the just, adds to the ambiance. It's so funny. I just suddenly realised. I was like, oh my god, I can hear all the kids shouting. Anyway, I know. I thought they were your kids. I was like, they were very active. Like thousands of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I do not have that many. Not at all. Um, all right. What was I saying? Um, yeah, so my husband, husband. Yeah. yeah. So he was doing his kind of obligatory Aussie um, round the world tour, European yeah. tour thing. Yeah. Um, I met him when he was 26. He was doing a surf trip around Europe. And then once that surf trip finished, he then uh, applied to uh, do a ski season that's where we met uh but he's a teacher he's a primary school teacher yeah Yeah. so he'd kind of taken a bit of a break um but yeah when when we came back he kind of just um went straight back into that job and yeah he's still a teacher okay so let's talk about then how you got sort of from from this to to writing your first novel yeah so 
after that, so we did that job in France uh, twice. We did the ski season twice. And with the money that we earned from those jobs, we did a lot of traveling. Um, we backpacked around Central America. We went diving in Egypt. Um, we did all, all kinds of uh, wonderful things. And then his European visa ran out. So, and I was still young enough to get my Australian working holiday visa. So, you know, we were like, right, let's go to Australia and see what it's like there, kind of continue the adventures. And, uh, a few years later, I, you know, we had a mortgage, we were married, um, I was pregnant, uh, and, um, yeah, the, the kind of the, the visa turned into permanent residency and then it turned into citizenship. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I very much have roots now, but it all seems like, um, a, a bit of an organic process. There was never a decision where we were like, right, this is, this is where we're going to live forevermore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in the midst of all of that, you know, imagine I, I'm, I'm living on the other side of the world um, in this extraordinary place by the beach with the man I love, you know, all, all wonderful. Um, but I, I didn't I didn't have I, I didn't have any sense of, of purpose and I didn't have any kind of great sense of achievement. So with um, the acting, again, like I said, I worked for so many years uh, at that and it gave me an, an enormous sense of a personal achievement professional achievement um and and purpose and I just like without that and without any creative outlet I was starting to feel a bit adrift and a mm. bit untethered a bit lost uh I didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of my life work-wise I was kind of massaging here and there but it really wasn't anything that was fulfilling me and then when I had my babies, um, you know, I kind of channeled a lot of that type A personality energy into them and into, you know, getting it right. You know, fine. If I don't, if I can't achieve professionally, by God, I'm going to achieve as a mother, you know, which is yes. the most unhealthy attitude ever. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my first baby was wonderful in terms of, you know, very textbook, very easy, very predictable, um, whenever there was an issue, I just literally look him up in the baby books and um, there would be the answer and I would mm. apply it and it would work and it was fine. And he slept and it was, you know, it was so easy. Uh, and of course, you know, I was like, oh, well, I, I must be oh, doing it right then. One. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I must be doing it right. I'm clearly killing it. Um, I am. I have another one. So we had uh, our second baby and she was the exact opposite. She was like a Rubik's cube of a child, completely just unfathomable in terms of her needs and her wants. And um, she never slept. Uh, she, she it, it was like she had colic, but she didn't. You know, we went and had her checked mm. and they were like, no, she's she doesn't have colic. She's just, she just is... <laughs> cranky like <laughs> so it was it was really hard and 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 I think the hardest thing about that as well is when you've got two under two mm. um you don't actually have time to stop and uh, take a breath and figure things out slowly you know it, it it felt very much like being in a in a kind of cyclone um yeah and I've I burnt out very quickly very fast um developed um pretty chronic postnatal anxiety um, and so it was sort of in that, um, whirlwind of self-doubt and waning sense of identity mm. and just feeling very homesick, not just for my literal home and my family, but also for who, who I was. I just yeah. didn't know who I was anymore. Yeah. Um, and so at that point I was kind of thinking, you know, is there any way I could get back to acting? But it just like, you know, to try and break into another industry from scratch just felt, it felt too difficult. And also I was still, I did feel still very burnt and I, I you know, I just didn't want to go back there. Um, and so I thought, well, what else am I going to do? You know, I need something artsy. So maybe I could join a drumming group. Maybe I could learn to paint. Maybe I could write a book. I don't know. So, you know, and I, I went and got, <laughs> well, you know, just write a book. Well, you know, but like not just for myself, like, and, and all of these things, you know, they are, they are creative, um, outlets, things that you can do, but on your own terms and in yeah. your own time yeah, to fulfill yourself in a very quiet, personal way. 
that is not necessarily about achievement or you know it's not anything that you depend on financially it's just for you yeah um and so that's how it started but then I went to I I kind of started you know reading the how-to books and I started to do some um workshops uh online I started to really learn about the craft and I got very Mm. excited um and it all it was all making a lot of sense to me and it also felt very much like a natural progression actually from acting and performance and and you know, at the the beginning, when I first started trying it, I was like, oh, you know, I feel like such a fraud, you know, what have, what have I got to bring to the table here? I can't write, who do I think I am? Mm. But then the more I did it, I was like, actually, no, I've been training for this forever. Like, I know story, I know character, I know conflict, I I know how to do this. Um, And I don't, I can't describe it. There was just a point at which I was like, this just feels so, so right. Yeah. Uh, And I know that I can do this. And then there was a kind of turning point when I went to a, a particular workshop at the Sydney Writers Festival in, I think, 2017. And um, the workshop was being run by a commissioning editor, senior commissioning editor at a big publishing house. And part of the workshop was pitching the idea for your book. And at the end of the class, she kind of pulled me over and said, I think your idea has legs. And when you and it was it was it the was, safe it was the safe place. Yeah. <laughs> So let me ask you then, because I always find this quite interesting with debut novels. Mm. Did you have a story forming in your head before thinking I'm going to write a book? Absolutely. Oh, you did. So it wasn't, I'm going to write a book. I've got to come up with the story. No. There was something forming. Yeah. And and, um, when I was doing the publicity for Safe Place, I was asked quite a lot, you know, how long did it take you to write the book? And my kind of stock answer was like two and a half years uh, from first words to publication. Uh, you know, I think it was maybe just over a year. So maybe 14 months to write the first draft. But of course, I had been thinking about this idea and thinking about writing a book for a long time before that. Um, And so really, I think that the the true answer is about five years. Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah. Because I think, you know, that, that, creative thinking time is as important as laying the words down yeah Um, and it had been brewing for a long time and it wasn't just um I want to write about acting or or I want to write about um you know this job that we did in France there was something else that was really weighing on my mind there was a particular uh, thing that I I became obsessed with, and I, I don't want to yeah. give away that thing because of well, spoilers. This is my this is my question. <laughs> I was I just interviewed Christian White last week. Oh, who I know, you know. Yeah. Yes, and uh, we were trying to explain Wild Place without spoiling anything, and it's very mm. hard when you're interviewing, especially in the genre of thriller crime. You know, I would even call your latest book horror. Has anyone mm. said that to you? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, a little yeah. bit scary. Yeah. We'll talk about yeah. it in a minute. Yeah, but um. When, when you are writing, sorry, when you're interviewing someone about a thriller book, it's very hard to talk about the book because you don't want to spoil any of the twists. And there's lots of twists and turns in both of your books. So without spoiling anything, when it comes to the writing process, are the twists something that come to you before the story is actually fleshed out? Like, do you start with a twist or do you start with a story and then try and find a twist to pop in there? It's a hard question to answer because... Uh... I mean, I've only ever done this twice. So yeah. I find it really hard to kind of say, well, this is what I do as a writer because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have only yeah. done it twice. Um, and both times have been really different experiences. Okay. And I think that is quite common with first books and second books. I, I have heard from uh, other authors that's really, you know, when you get to your third book, your fourth book, your fifth book, you, you start to get into a bit more of a groove and you start to understand how you work best and mm. what your kind of optimum conditions or strategies are or whatever um I I definitely haven't figured that out with this second book with the um with the first book the twist comes about because um basically it's a story about the discovery of a secret and I knew what that secret was to begin with that's what I wanted to write about it that was the thing that was that was keeping me up at night and you know really got under my skin and I was like I really want to explore that situation and what that feels like from the inside what might that feel like from the Mm. inside um 
So then the challenge with the, the story and the, the, the narrative was how, how do you then work backwards from that? And what might that look like to someone coming in who doesn't know about it? And what happens if that person really falls in love with these people? So then there's a kind of, there's, there's moral gray area when yeah. the, the secret is discovered. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was all the things that I was trying to do. So with the safe place, it was kind of working backwards and trying to disguise things and, and trying to figure out what might this look like? And, and from these characters' points of view, what, what are the red herrings for them? Do you yeah, know and, I mean? I, and I guess for us as well as readers, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. But it came very organically from the characters. Whereas with the Shadow House, uh, that <laughs> was much more like, okay, you got to write another one. Go. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Oh, <laughs> what am I going to write about? What's, what's, what's the twist? Um, and so that was very scary. And that was very much a case of building a story from the ground up, um, uh, very, very quickly at speed, under pressure, uh, and, and, kind of putting the the bricks in place mm. uh, one by one. Uh, I mean, I've got to be honest, it wasn't really even until draft three that some of the major characters, some of the key players were even, you know, even appeared. Really? So it was a real sense of, dis- and, and I, I also wrote a first draft that was like 90,000 words that did not work and I had to throw it out completely. What was, what was your timeline for The Shadow House? Safe Post was published in 2020, July of 2020. They had asked me to have a first draft ready by the time it came out because we signed the deal for the safe place a good sort of nine to 12 months before that. So we're like, if if you've got a second book idea, we suggest you get going on it while we're kind of, you know, doing these edits and before it comes out. But when that deadline rolled around, I still hadn't got this first draft and I was still struggling with it. But because I'd written my first novel on my own terms and by myself, I just kind of assumed that's what you had to do. And so they were all kind of saying, do you want to check in? Do you want to throw some ideas around? And I'm going, no, 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 I got it. I got it. I'm good. Uh, You know, and I really wasn't good at all. And so when it came to hand it in, I already knew that it wasn't working. I felt really sick about it. I actually found writing this first draft a really uncomfortable, unjoyous experience. And so I kind of handed it in going, I'm so sorry. I know it doesn't work. And they were gorgeous about it, but they said, yeah, no, it doesn't work. Um, But these are the reasons why. And these are the good things about it. These are the things that we'd like you to retain, but these are the things that that really need a lot of work. So it was kind of, it was it was a terrifying experience, but it was also, again, a vertical learning curve. It was absolutely amazing in terms of, um, you know, being, being educated, being schooled <laughs> in why stories work the way they work. And, mm. you know, it's all stuff that I, I kind of thought I knew intuitively, but actually, you know, I, I mean... God, I think we're all learning our craft um, all the time. We're never, it's never too late to learn. But for me, I was like, oh, wow, this is eye-opening. Okay, this is stuff that I didn't know. Um, and yeah, so then there was this kind of furious process trying to uh, write this story that I, I, I didn't know the ending. I didn't know the twists. But that, I think, like now I look at that book and I go, I think there's a real kind of raw, live, crackly energy about that book because of that. I actually didn't know the ending. I, you know, I wrote the ending about, I would say probably about seven or eight times. Uh, Each time was something different. Um, Yeah. So the twists, it's almost like as I wrote it, I was discovering them too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what I love, I mean, I love both, I love both books for different reasons, but I, what I love about the shadow house was I was actually terrified while I was reading it, which it doesn't usually happen to me, but I always read at night and I couldn't, I had to, I had to read it during the day because I was <laughs> having nightmares. Um, but that's probably me just being a little bit soft, but I loved, <laughs> I loved the, the amount of characters in it because it's set, it's set in this eco village, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it's sort of a case of who done it the whole time, right? Because there's so many different characters in the village where in the safe place, it kind of focuses around, you know, the four characters in the book. Yeah. And that's kind yeah. of what I mean about it being, it's the safe place is much more character focused. It's much more, um, 
you know, like the, it, it definitely is suspenseful. It's definitely mysterious. It's definitely creepy. There's a sense of impending danger, but ultimately what I'm trying to do is explore a situation from the inside mm. and, and really look at certain characters and why they do the things that they do. Whereas, yeah, the shadow house much more uh, about, um, like as you said, it's a who done it. It's also a what done it because it's yeah, not what quite, done it exactly. <laughs> it's not quite apparent what has happened uh, for a while. So, uh, and I was very, very deliberately trying to um, you know play more with uh, horror tropes and scares and trying to you know like. I love all that stuff. I love uh, horror books, horror novels, uh, horror, horror um, you know, series and, and movies and stuff. Um, okay, yeah, so, I can tell. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. So I was really trying to utilize that to see if I could scare myself. You know, like what what would be really really creepy right now? Oh yeah, this this. Is well, gonna, it's not. Know, it's not overtly no, scary, but that's my right? favorite kind yeah. of suspense and horror. No, you, is did, where... you did really well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good to hear. That's what I was going for. Yeah, um, let's talk about the eco village. It's mm. set. It's set in what? Well, yeah, what you describe as an eco village. Can you explain that to people who are not aware of what that is? Yeah. So an eco village is basically a a, a, a community, like a gated community of people who are trying to live sustainably. Um, So you've got, um, I think when I first heard about eco-villages, I thought, what, like a commune? Like a cult? What is this? Like, what what are they living in? Tents? What is, but actually when you go and walk around them, the houses are gorgeous. They look pretty much like any other house. Some of them are extraordinary in terms of the architecture, Um, but they're all, you, they're all built using um, eco-friendly, sustainable materials. They all have to kind of fulfill a certain set of criteria to qualify. Um, and they're all desperately trying to reduce their um, their sort of eco-footprint as well. They're, they're living on smaller plots of land. Some of them have a – they've got a um, – a program called what's it called collaborative living where um so perhaps two families or or two singles might go in on a plot of land together and they build a primary residence and maybe put like a tiny house on it as well so essentially Mm. you've 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 um cut that the price of the the land in half and your building materials uh you know your, your build is is reduced as well they also um grow their own food and um they, I mean, it's not quite as closed as you might imagine. The, the ones that I visited, um, you know, there's a lot of commuters, city commuters. There are, but there are a lot of work from homers as well. Yeah. Um, so what what was it then about these eco villages that made you feel that this was the perfect setting for this rather creepy novel? Well, I, I mean. A closed community as a narrative device is always really interesting because you've Mm. got um, a whole cast of characters thrown together in a place where either they they are unwilling to leave or they can't leave or whatever. And then you can just kind of wind them up and watch them watch them go. Um, The eco villages that I visited are really beautiful, though, as well. And it's very much like they are trying to live. in harmony with with the land and and that's a very kind of beautiful thing to see visually um i think as well we're a very individualistic society we're still a bit suspicious about kind of groups of people that live in a certain way that i've kind of leaned into that um i i think that you know we we still don't know a lot about eco villages and and uh yeah, the, the, there's almost a sense of what are they doing in there? Yeah. It's a bit weird, isn't and it? And why are they here? What are they running from? Yeah, what are they, what are they running from? Yeah. <laughs> what are they kind of doing in here that, that we can't be part of? What's that yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's all of that. Um, and and there was one eco-village that I visited, uh, one very near to my house. Um, and when I went there to look around, uh, there were these older buildings around, kind of these derelict farm kind of sheds and stuff. And I was like, what's 
what's over there? And they're like, oh, yeah, the, the eco-village was built over a horticultural research station. So when we arrived, there were lots of laboratories, like abandoned laboratories everywhere. She was like, it was a bit creepy. It was a bit weird. Like, what were they doing in the labs sort of thing? And I was like, that is very cool. Like, this, yeah. the idea that you are layering uh, a whole kind of community and a set of of, of people on top of something else and how does what that land used to be affect what it is now which is essentially the premise for the book right yes yeah so can you can you give us a little synopsis of the shadow house for people who haven't read it i can so the shadow house follows uh alex she's a single mum of two she has a seven month old baby and a 14 year old teenage boy and she's fleeing from uh an abusive relationship Um, And in doing so, she moves her family to this eco-village called Pine Ridge, which suits her needs perfectly. It's very um, isolated. You know, there's there's, with the community, there's this sense of safety in numbers. Um, And at first, it it does seem to be everything she wants it to be. And it's gorgeous. And and the people are really friendly. And she's sort of slapping herself on the back going, this is great. Well done. Great move. But very quickly some very creepy things start to happen to her and they're very odd, these things. And and it, it sort of seems like she might be being targeted for some reason. So she does some digging and she finds out that the same creepy things in the same sequence happened to another woman. And this woman was the, uh, the, the, the farmer who lived on the land over which the eco-village was built. So Pine Ridge was built over a flower farm. And so Alex discovers that these creepy things happened to the farmers who lived on that land with the result that their teenage son vanished off the face of the earth. Mm. So then the book becomes about trying to find out what happened in the past in order to save her son in the present and then of course all the you know the the cast of characters comes into it and all their different agendas and and who they really are and what's really going on at Pine Ridge yeah and so essentially the book moves through two timelines it does move through two timelines so you do have the the point of view of Alex and the flower farmer Renee so you do see her in, in real time as well which was done really well. Sometimes I find, you know, that back and forth can be really confusing for the reader. But I think what I found most notable about it was that Alex was written in the first person mm. and Renee was written in the third. Is that right? Yeah. 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 yeah which is a really deliberate thing because I, I agree. I, th- I think that sometimes um, it can be very confusing for the reader if the two voices aren't distinct you know, sufficiently mm. distinct. And and Alex and Renee are two, they are very different characters, but they have a lot of similarities as well. And that's yeah. deliberate, you know, they have a lot of crossovers. And so that was the only way that I could, I was like, you know, I'm going to have to write one as I and one as she. And, and the third person for Renee as well also gives you that sense of distance as well, because her POV is, is in the past. Yeah, I, I I actually found the first person, it's the first time I've written in first person. I found that really uncomfortable for quite a while. It was quite a challenge for me. Um, because because you're in the head of the reader or because the, the protagonist, sorry, in the head of the protagonist or because she had to be there for every scene? Um, Neither. I think it was a challenge for me because um thus far I so when I when I start writing I often see it I see a scene before I write it so I kind of almost like close my eyes and I watch things play out and then I write them down um and so that kind of naturally lends itself to third person um and also I really enjoy uh description um and so with first person, you've kind of got to be careful of f- not flowery prose. Like I, I, I'm never kind of, I don't think I'm that flowery, but y- there's a certain way of writing that needs to be very, very authentic to that mm. character's voice. You know, you can't really, if you're writing in first person, you can't really deviate and, and sort of comment on what's going on as, as a, an author uh, which is wonderful and good, you know, you you don't want that, but it was quite, um, it was just a different technique for me that I found quite challenging. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I had to make sure that, you know, over the draft, so it's like, okay, she's, we're still not really feeling Alex's voice. It's still not quite right. And so it, it took a long time to really sink into her skin and get mm-hmm. her voice, you know, right, bang on. Let's talk about your writing process a little bit, because I think people, listeners would have connected to the fact that you are a mother, two young kids, you know, how, how do you find the time to write? What, what sort of, what's an average writing day look like for you when you're in the thick of book writing? Well, it looks, it looks a hell of a lot uh, less chaotic than it did when I first started writing. Now it's great because, um, you know, I've got my five-year-old is, um, she goes to preschool four days a week and my son's at school. He's in year one. Um, so I have four days, you know, bet- between school hours where there's no one else in the house and, and I get, you know, peace and quiet and time to concentrate and I can structure my day. I can literally, you know, plan out what I need to do. And it's very, very manageable. Um, when I first started writing, I uh, would take the kids to a soft play area and I would set up a table and I would be writing a chapter whilst also handing out snacks and, um, you know, yeah, wiping wow. noses. I would take my notebooks to the park and while they played in the sandpit, I'd sit next to them and I'd write notes. Um, I would, you know, beg, well, I wouldn't have to beg. He's actually a really, really hands-on, very helpful, brilliant dad. But I would, you know, my, my husband would take the kids out on a, uh, a weekend for a couple of hours at the park. And then I, I, that would be the time that I had to make use of it. And that was, it was actually, it was okay. I mean, it was, it was chaotic, but I made it work. And I think, you just do, you know, if you've, if you've got a particular amount of time in the day when you have to get something done, you get it done. Mm. Um, but it was, it was quite exhausting. And, you know, like I said, it's so much nicer and calmer to be able to plan and structure a working day. When you do have a day to yourself to write, what sort of, what sort of process do you go through? Are you, are you, do you find you're more productive in the morning? Is there certain things that you need to sort of knock out early? What, how does it work? It depends on what I've got on. Um, but yeah, I, I am definitely a morning person and, and something I neglected to mention uh, a second ago is that um, when I was first starting to write, I, I used to get up at 4am as mm. well before any of the, the family um, woke up woke and started up. demanding <laughs> breakfast. So yeah, my, I, I'm definitely more productive in the morning. So I'm somebody that's much more likely to go to bed at eight o'clock and try and get up at four in order to get work done. Um, so sometimes I still do like that. Like this morning, um, I was up at five thirty to try and get a few bits and bobs done before mm. the family get up. Um, because actually those school hours, it actually, it's not a massive working day. It's sort of no. nine till two, you know, which is, is, is not huge. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, it d- does depend on what I've got on. Um, sometimes it's research. Sometimes it's a day where I'm just um, dedicating it to catching up on emails. Sometimes uh, it is, you know, it's like I've got these a deadline and I've got these hours and I have to write a certain amount of words. So then it's, uh, you turn off the phone, put your noise cancelling headphones on, you, you have a coffee and you just go. And I am somebody that can sit down for like six hours at a time and not move and just keep going and keep going. That's incredible. Well, incredible, really bad for your back. Um, when I, (laughs) when I finished, um, the shadow house, one of the final drafts, uh, I, I sent it off and I was standing up in the spare room trying to work from the top of a, a chest of drawers because I had nowhere. Like I don't have a standing up desk situation, which I probably should get at some point, but my arms, like I'd got carpal tunnel in my arms. Mm. And so I, I was, I, I remember finishing it, standing in the spare room. I closed the laptop. I got straight in the car and drove to the chiropractor and just walked into into the room and just like cried <laughs> I was like I can't feel my arms help me so it's actually not a good thing sometimes but yeah like um some days are incredibly focused and some t- some days are a little bit more piecemeal sometimes like even you know like like I said that creative thinking time is really important so sometimes of a working day I'll make sure that I get out for for a big walk and quite often that's where I'll nut out a plot point or that's mm. where I'll, you know, I'll figure something out. And that's just as important as sitting in the chair. Oh, laying down absolutely. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. I want to talk to you about reading because I know you're an avid reader. Yeah. You do love a book, don't you? I do. So um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you when you're, when you are writing, cause I really struggle with this. Like, can you read while you're writing or do you find yeah. it a bit confusing? No, you can't. No. You can. I, I do all the time. I, no matter what is going on in my life, I'm always reading. Um, yeah. I kind of feel like I understand it when some people say it's a bit distracting to be reading books while you're trying to write yourself. And maybe it can be, it can confuse your, your voice or whatever. Yeah. But I, I, that's not true at all for me and how I see it is almost like it's trying to dance without music do you know what I mean if you don't have a beat you can't dance if if I don't have a kind of a constant uh stream of of um books and stories kind of going through my my head in the background like I I I don't know like I would find it very difficult to um engage creatively without that that kind of um without consuming it otherwise um I also think I think it's just smart to engage with what other people are doing um it's very inspiring it's very energizing you know sometimes while you're writing you'll be reading a book on the side and it won't really be doing anything for you and that's okay and then other times you'll pick something up and it will completely inject whole new energy and life into what you're thinking or it'll spark a little fire of your own yeah so I'm constantly going to other writers and other books like it's almost like you're in constant conversation with with other stories and other writers I find it really helpful no that's great all right well I have some rapid fire book questions for you (laughs) Yeah, I've actually written some of the answers down because I can go off on a tangent. So I have <laughs> oh, some answers ready. Anna, you are not alone. This is <laughs> the least rapid fire part of the podcast that exists. I've got to change the name of it. First question, fiction or non-fiction? Fiction. Fiction. Okay, so that was a good start, good start. <laughs> what was your, your favourite book growing up? Okay, as a child, I would say probably... Matilda as a teen yeah god I love that book so much I had um I had a friend and we would read it together like we would literally hang out together we would lie down in the in the back garden and we would read it together we would turn the page at the same time when we found out that Miss Trunchbull was Miss Honey's aunt we were like (gasps) (gasps) best book twist ever (laughs) ultimate plot twist it was so good um and I reckon as a teenager I the book I reread most often was Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman oh I don't know that one oh I was a Terry Pratchett super fan Growing up, like as a teenager, I would queue at the bookshops and I, I had... Oh, wow. Yeah, I just loved him. <laughs> um, and so, oh, I also remember being really obsessed with Anne of Green Gables and I used yes. to kind of pretend I was Anne Shirley all the time. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. What What do you think was the book that changed your life? Um, I have two Um Bonjour Tristesse by Francois Sagan uh, was a book that I think I was like nine or 10 and I was on holiday and my mum was reading it. And I said, oh, what's that book about? And she said, oh, have a look, you know, chucked it over onto my towel. I'm going to go for a swim. Off she went. And I, when she got back, I was stuck in it. And she's like, that's a really adult book. Like you're, you're really young to be reading that. I was like, I love it. This is great. And it's kind of been cemented into my family mythology that that's that was a real turning point that was a the the point at which my mom went oh my god she's a reader and that's kind of been my identifier for the rest of time that like you know that's what I do I read books um so that was a big have you have you read it again since then no I've got I've actually it's, it's on my shelf just I can see it I'm going to I'm going to read it. I haven't yeah, read just it be then. interesting how you yeah. feel about it now as an adult. Yeah. Yeah, I will read it again. Um, and then there's another book that I think changed my writing life in a sense. Is um, It's a little bit of a cliche, but Eat, Pray, Love, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert, was probably the first time um, that I read something that was um, – so true it just felt so true and real to me but also her writing is so funny and warm and gorgeous and it just felt like um 
I was experiencing a way that you can connect with somebody else by being very, very true to your own experiences, no matter how weird they might feel to you. And obviously it's very exposing writing about your own feelings and your private kind of deepest, darkest thoughts. But somewhere in the world, someone will resonate hard with that. Do you know what I mean? The entire world resonated with it, pray love. (laughs) Exactly. But I I feel like it was the first time that I really got that, that I was like, oh, you know, you know, like it opens with her on the bathroom floor. And I just thought like the way that she writes that, I'm like, you know, not everybody's going to resonate with that. Not everybody, but it really did with Mm -hmm. me. And I thought, right, okay, so I'm never going to um be inauthentic ever again with what I create like it has to be it has to come from a real place because and it doesn't matter if somebody judges it because I know it's real and another reader will feel that it's real as well absolutely would you ever consider writing a memoir type novel I mean never say never but my immediate reaction is nope no (laughs) (laughs) very happy happy to hide behind that fiction curtain thank you very much yep yeah yeah fair enough (laughs) um okay is there a book that you find yourself buying for other people I buy books for people all the time and I usually think really hard about how to match them with the person. Do you know what I mean? So there's not really any one book that I buy a lot for other people. Having said that, I have bought um, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert for a lot of people who um, have said to me over the last few years, you know, I really, I would love to write, but I just, I can't, I'd probably be be no good at it. And that's the book Mm. that I always then order for them and have delivered to their house and say, just read that because that is about, um, how to be creative on your own terms for yourself with no fear and you know what an absolute joy and privilege it is to have creativity in your life when you are free of of feeling of of the pressure of you know feeling afraid of it absolutely it's such an incredible book yeah um not on the rapid fire list but I do have a question for you are there particular authors that you feel inspired by as a writer every time I read a Leanne Moriarty I'm really inspired yeah. Um, Have you read the latest one? Yeah, I, I did. I literally finished it yesterday. Okay, please. Can we talk about it? Yeah, I let's mean, talk about it. What did What did you think? Um, I look. I I think she's an absolute master. Again, what she does is she's really authentic to her own voice and. I think her own experiences, and she picks out and illustrates these gorgeous moments in life, in in, in the lives of her characters that you go, oh my God, that is totally me, but I've never thought about it that way. Or I've never noticed that I do that or that somebody else does that. And that I Mm. feel a certain way about it. She's really, really great at that. And I think Apples Never Fall is, is a perfect example of that. She Um, is, she is, yeah, she, she is brilliant at that. And I, I just felt with Apples Never Fall, it just felt it just dragged a little bit yeah, for me. I have to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I, I, I've got to agree. And I hate it because it's sort of, you know, I, I don't ever want to say a bad thing about Leanne Moriarty, but I, no. I, I felt like it was a bit uneven, maybe. Like mm. some parts were really slow. And then there was other parts. Like once you hit that scene in the middle with the family dinner party, it's like, yeah. yes, okay, now yeah, I'm all in. On. Let's go, let's go. And then right? there's another little dip as well where it kind of slows down again. And then it kind of, you know, ratchets yeah. up again towards the end. And I, yeah, for me, I was a bit like, it felt a bit jolty. But, you know, I, again, I can't, I just can't criticize her because she's a no, master. No, I mean, she's we're, amazing. Just, we're just getting right into the nitty gritty of it. <laughs> yeah. she is- Master, my favorite Leanne Moriarty book, and I think it's quite controversial because I don't think anyone says this, is The Hypnotist Love Story. I love that one. Yeah, I think it's the best. Uh, There was just something about that story that really kind of sat with me for a long time after. I loved um, What Alice Forgot. I thought that was also great you know they um they sold the film rights to that like years and years and years ago and they haven't made anything no nothing's come out yet but um, yeah I've got my ear firmly pressed to the ground but yeah I think um she's she's phenomenal I'm always very inspired by her and very inspired by um Jane Harper whenever Mm. one of her books come out I always that always tends to spark little ideas or like you know um she's just she's a master at structure like I'm 
very, very envious of the, of the, the way that she orders her books and the way that she delivers information. And always, you know, Gillian Flynn, her books and her screenwriting as well, that she does a lot of now. Um, whenever I come across something of hers, I'm like, oh, that's what I want to do. That is it, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. But, but there's also loads of other stuff. Like, did you read um, Sorrow and Bliss? I ha- no, I've actually been putting off reading Sorrow and Bliss because I've just heard that it's quite harrowing to read and I just don't know if I have it in me at the moment. I don't, I, personally, I didn't find it harrowing at all. Um, I, I actually think it's incredibly funny and witty and brilliant oh, okay. in, in a sort of um, Nora Ephron, Catherine Heine kind of way. I mean, oh. th- th- there are there are some really, there, there are some quite dark bits, but I, it, it's not... I wouldn't say it's harrowing at okay, all. I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put it on the list for sure. It's very clever, very smart, but it also it really filled me up, and that's another thing that you know. Oh my god! And um, did you read Daisy Jones and the Six? Yes, love okay. Daisy Jones and the Six. Yeah. So that book is what like there's something about that book that um has it has this energy like it's just all heart and things like that when you you. You read a story and you go, I, I just don't know why, but I am tingling all over right now. And that's the kind of story, that's the kind of reaction that I would love to, um, you know, provoke in somebody else one day. Like, would you, would you, is. I mean, the books that you've written, I guess we spoke about it before, they, they fall into that sort of thriller genre. Mm. Would you write outside of that genre? Is that something that you'd want to explore? I don't know, really. I feel like, you know, The Safe Place is, is a bit of a genre mishmash. Um, and that's just what came out when I, I wrote. Yeah. So it, I, that was a bit like, oh, I don't really know what I'm, you know, I'm definitely not setting out to write a crime novel or write a thriller or write anything. I'm just writing a story. And that's the kind mm. of the tone and the style and the voice that 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 came out. The other thing is that I'm I'm always more attracted to darker stuff than I am anything else like I really enjoy that adrenaline rush um of of the darker things and of shining light into dark corners to see what's Mm. in there um Mm. I tend to become very obsessed with certain news stories that are ridiculously dark and then I'm like well how did that come about why is that what's what's that all about um and what's the psychology behind you know why humans behave like that um and I also like I said before I am my my favorite kind of um, visual storytelling is all thriller horror like um the guessing game you know the 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 riddle that it sets up and then you kind of uh, you, you get to play detective yourself to figure out what's going on I love that I love sitting on the couch going it's him Oh my god! No, it's not. It's somewhere else. What is going on? Like, love. So, that. do you do you also love watching like Broadchurch and like British crime dramas? I did that, watch Broadchurch. Okay. I really liked Broadchurch. I thought it was yeah, an it was excellent good, show. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so yeah, I, I do watch some British um, crime shows. I watch everything. Like, again, I I sort of don't really have a a system of, of what I prefer and what I don't, I, I will give anything a go because I'm yeah. often really surprised at what strikes a chord with me or what, what chimes. Um, and sometimes things that I absolutely expected would be totally my bag, just on off for some reason, yeah. you know? So, yeah. um, I always feel like, I don't know, like so, sometimes there's a, uh, just a, an unknown, unidentifiable, thing that just grabs hold of you and holds it tight and I actually I kind of don't want to um interrogate that sometimes you know like with Daisy Jones and the Six I'm like I don't know why I don't know why I love this book so much or why I'm tingling right now maybe I don't need to know why it's fine have you read um have you read Malibu Rising yeah I did did you like that one I did not quite as much it didn't set me on fire quite the way that Daisy Jones did but I really really enjoyed it like I think she's a a phenomenal writer she is a phenomenal writer what has been your favorite book this year I would say The Last House on Needless Street by Catriona Ward followed very closely by Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby I haven't heard of either of those. Ah, so 
Last House on Needless Street is, um, if you can think of the last book that you read that totally floored you in terms of, you know, like a twist or made you gasp, for a lot of people, you know, it's Gone Girl or The Girl on the Train or, you know, some of those. But it's, you know, the last time that something made you really excited because you, and it, that's what this book is for me. Oh, I just, my and it's, God. it's very, very original. It's beautifully written. Um, and it's, uh, it's really dark, but in a, in a, just a really delicious way. Um, okay, I'm going to go get that today. It's brilliant. Razorblade <laughs> Tears by S.A. Cosby is, I just think it's one of those books that everybody should read right now. Um, it's about uh, two older fathers. They're both ex-cons um, and their sons were married and they have just both been oh. murdered. So it's about these two older ex-criminals um, one's black, one's white, and they have to work together to try and find out who killed their gay sons. And it is just, it's a very, um, it's an amazing exploration of uh, masculinity. Yeah, wow. Razor really. blade tears. Razor blade okay. Tears. Yeah. Um, two more questions. What are you currently reading? Well, I just literally yesterday finished Apples Never Fall. I just started The Others by Mark Brandy. Um and I'm also reading an, uh, an advanced reader's copy of a new crime novel by Benjamin Stevenson called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Somebody. Oh, <laughs> well, that sounds right up your alley. It's nice really, it's really good. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Anna, thank you so much for joining me on Talk Wedding to Me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I feel like I could sit here and chat with you for another three hours. I know, so I'm fun. sure we... I'm sure we could. So the books are <laughs> The Safe Place and The Shadow House, both available in stores now, and I highly recommend both of them. I've, I've churned through both of them in two days, two days each. Oh, thank you so, so yeah, much. yeah, they're great. I'm so pleased that you like them. Thank you so much for having me on. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, make sure you share it with your friends on Instagram by taking a screenshot on your phone and sharing it to your Instagram stories. You can tag me at Jordana Levine and tag Anna at Anna underscore Downs underscore writer. So like I said at the beginning of this episode, this is the last episode for a month and then I will be back with amazing new authors, a new co-host and a little freshen up to the current format. Make sure you're subscribed to know when season two pops back on the air. Until then, I'm Jordana Levine and you've been listening to Talk Word to Me. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.